0: Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show, intrepid investigative analyst, Pacifica host, and contributor to the show, Garland Nixon, on Trainwreck America and more.
1: My name's Garland Nixon. And all right, plenty going on here. Um, Let's talk about President Biden gave a speech. Which I can—let's just say this. I listened to the speech, and I found it disturbing and troubling on so many levels. Joe Biden goes on the air and says, you know, well, we need another $60 billion for Ukraine. Now, keep in mind something, it ain't going to Ukraine. It never went to Ukraine. It's going to Lockheed Martin. It's going to Raytheon. The weapons that we gave them, we gave them old weapons— He says that in a speech in which I've said before on air and people didn't believe me that we were giving them old weapons and we were using the money for Ukraine to restock our stuff. Listen to this. I said that I had somebody call. No, no, we're giving. I said, no, 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 don't fool yourself. And it was I went over articles that said we're giving Ukraine weapons and the Ukrainians are complaining because some of them are old. Some of them don't work. The batteries are dead, blah, blah, blah. Right. And people are like, ah, oh, Garland, what are you talking about? Let me read this article from Joe Biden's speech. Right. We send this is from Joe Biden's speech. We send Ukraine equipment sitting in our stockpiles. And when we use the money allocated by Congress, you we use it. To replenish our own stockpiles with new equipment. They gave them the old crap that was sitting around that was going to go bad. The Ukrainians were complaining. They were saying, why are we get these things and we got to strip four of them down to make one? <laughs> you know why? Because it was all a scam. Just like Afghanistan, when they left $100 billion worth of weapons. I mean, what did they leave Afghanistan? What did they do when they left Afghanistan? They left tanks. They left helicopters. They left bullets. They left laptops. They left everything. They picked up and left a hundred billion dollars worth of weapons. And the Taliban just said, thanks. What do they care? It was all a money laundering operation. Anyway, it all is. And now Joe Biden admits in his own speech, we send Ukraine equipment sitting in our stockpiles Many, a lot of that stuff has been there for years, many, many, many years. It's, it don't even work no more. And when we use the money allocated by Congress, we use it to replenish our own stores, our own stockpiles with new equipment. Got a bunch of stuff sitting in there, all this old crap. How are we going to get rid of it? Hey, let's start a war. Okay, what are we going to do? We'll give all this crap away. It don't work anyway. Who cares? And we'll get money. And we'll say to the American people, we need money to send weapons to you know Ukraine, Afghanistan, wherever. We need money to send, buy new weapons and send over there. And now Joe Biden, Joe Biden admits we were never really sent by using that weapon to buy them stuff. We were giving them the old crap. <laughs> Yeah, you're so concerned about Ukraine. They must defend themselves. They must have the most. Oh, yeah, we can't give them the modern weapons. What do we got laying around in the garage? Uh, We got some old stuff. I don't know if it works. Send it over to them. Who cares? It was always a scam. It was a scam on you and me. It was a scam on Ukraine. It was a scam. The whole thing was a scam. It's always a scam. And when Ukraine falls and collapses and like, look, 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 you are what your record says you are. That's what, that's what the tuna says. You are what your record says you are. What happened in Vietnam for eight, uh, what was it, a decade? Hey, we've got to stop communism in Vietnam. Billions of dollars. The United States literally came off the gold standard in the 70s. The, the dollar was pegged to the gold standards. In the early 70s, the United States stopped doing that. That's when we started printing all that money. You know why? Because we spent so much money in Vietnam. It was the war in Vietnam that caused us to do that, barring all that money. Okay. What happened in the end when they told us we must defeat communism, we must blah, 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 we must win, there's no way we can possibly win in Vietnam. What happened in the end? Anybody ever see those pictures of uh, the embassy in Hanoi? People were climbing, hanging off of helicopters, trying to get out. The United States just came in one day and said, yeah, it looks like the communists are going to win, we're out. And we're gone, 12 years, 55,000 dead people, like 800,000 injured. And they just woke up one day and said, all that stuff about that we can't possibly lose in Vietnam, yeah, ah, you know, um, ah, we're out. Now, what happened now, 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 what happened in Afghanistan? 20 years, somewhere around $2 trillion we spent and what did they say we can't leave Afghanistan why because if we do it will be an incubator for terrorism why There, these terrorists will come together and they'll plot evil things against us and they'll take us out we have got to stand up and we can't ever leave Afghanistan and on one bright Tuesday afternoon in August two years ago they said yeah we're out we're done we're see you later and what did we see in Afghanistan People hanging off of helicopters, falling off a of C-130 uh, uh, as they took off from Kabul airport. It was a disaster. It was a debacle. Same as Vietnam. Let me ask you something, my dear and fluffy friends. What do you think is going to happen in Ukraine? What do you think is going to happen? After after uh, Vietnam, what happened? Afghanistan, what happened? What do you think? Korea, what happened? They ran us out of Korea, right or wrong? What's going to happen in Ukraine? What did they say? Vietnam, we can't win because the communists will win. We can't have the communists. Uh, Who's in charge of Vietnam right now? Um, The Communist Party of Vietnam. They won. And might I add, Donald Trump went there. He left and he says, wow, they've got a great economy. I have to commend them on their economy. It's rolling because their economy is doing great. The Communist Party of Vietnam seems to be doing fine. The people of Vietnam are happy with it. But we said we couldn't possibly lose. Blah, 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 and what happened? Oh, by the way, we had no choice but to stay in Afghanistan because otherwise the Taliban would rule. Ta- you know, who could stand for the Taliban to rule? Ta- we couldn't leave. The Taliban would take over. And women and the LGBTQ—they wouldn't get their rights. We had to stay in Afghanistan because if we left, the Taliban would take over. Who, uh, who runs Afghanistan right now? I believe it's the Taliban. Now. We can't possibly leave Ukraine, cause if we do, the Russians will be in charge. And it'll oh, what a terrible thing. They'll eat the Ukrainians alive. They'll boil their babies. A horrible thing will happen if we leave Ukraine. Let me ask you this. What in the devil do you think's gonna happen in Ukraine? You're a fool. If you can't see the consistent pattern of what our foreign policy is, we go into a country, we spend trillions of dollars, we put it in the hands of Lockheed Martin, in Raytheon, in General Dynamics, money that they could have used for your roads, for food stamps for poor people, for money they could have used to rebuild our electrical grid, all this stuff they could have did. And they take it, they go to some country, they kill hundreds of thousands of people, bomb everything that won't move, and whoever it was that we said couldn't possibly take over ends up in charge. And they come home, and they give you another lie, and then they come up with a new country. We're there for goodness. We've got to stand for democracy. Stop communism. Terrorism. What shocks me is never that they do it because they're consistent. They do it over and over again. What shocks me, to be quite frank, I got to say this, is how gullible and stupid the American people are, no matter how many times they do it. Every single time they, hey, we're starting a new war for democracy. And, and I'm like, and this is me. You've been listening to my show for years. You know me. Every time we've got a new more? What more. we've got to stand up for democracy. And Garland comes on air and says. Uh, you know you're being lied to. They ain't starting this war for democracy. Not terrorism. And I say, you know, they're lying. It ain't for terrorism. It's a, another money grab, money whatever. And people call in. Well, Garland, you're just standing up for Putin. Oh, you're standing up for the terrorists. Why do you love the terrorists? Why are you there? Blah, blah, blah. That I always get the same attacks. And I just say, well, I'll just be patient. Because sooner or later, the callers will call in. And they'll say, You know, Garland, perhaps in hindsight, we were a little jumpy saying that you were just another Putin-loving, terrorist-loving, non-democracy-loving, authoritarian-loving bot. Perhaps in hindsight, maybe you had something. So for those of you who are still, I hate Garland Nixon, he loves Putin, and he likes the terrorists, he's not in favor of democracy. I'm a very patient man. And you know what? This ain't hard. You don't have to be Nostradamus. I do not need an eight ball to predict this. This is an easy one. But see, one of the things that's happening now is this. There was a time when the United States had this great power and they could go around the world and force people to do things. Those days are gone, my friends. There are other options for countries. There are other great, powerful countries that are arising. And the United States ain't what it used to be. We're up to our ears in debt. Our country. Go travel around the world. Go to Russia. Go to China. Go to uh, Dubai. Go to the mills. Go to these other countries and tell me what you see. Beautiful infrastructure. Streets are clean. Redid things. Rebuilding the subway. They got all this stuff. You come here and this country's falling apart. Get on a train right here in DC. Take that train and pull in the Union Station. And when you're pulling in your Union Station, look around. Those light posts are so rusty, they look like they was put up in the 1800s. It is a disgrace. I wouldn't want somebody from another country to come here, get on a train, and pull in a Union Station in D.C. because they'd be like, my God, how, how long is it? When did you? For God's sake, did they even have trains when it was built? They must, it must have been stagecoaches coming on in when they did that. It is a disaster and a disgrace.
0: And coming up next on the show, actress Alicia Witt, with thoughts and updates on the current actor strike against Wall Street-dominated Hollywood East and West, as well as the actress known for Twin Peaks, The Sopranos, Nashville, Citizen Ruth, I Care a Lot, The Walking Dead, Dune, and Orange is the New Black, taking time out during the strike to dive more into making her music lately with her new album, Witness. First, some scenes from David Lynch's Dune, Witt's first role at seven years old as the strange and scary Aaliyah, then Alicia Witt.
2: Bring in that floating fat man, the Baron. Why have you brought me here? Your Highness. There must be some mistake i never requested your presence ah but your lack of action demanded it your dreadful mismanagement your bad judgment in assigning to raban the governorship you forced me to come here and set things straight personally
3: i am a messenger from moadip poor emperor my brother won't be very pleased with you. Silence! Kill
2: this child. She's an abomination. Kill her.
3: Get out of
2: my mind! Not until you tell them both who I really am. Paul's sister. Paul is my deep. <laughs> with a storm.
3: Gurney, Now! Atomics!
2: My brother is coming with many Fremen warriors. Impossible. Not impossible.
3: I told you he is here now.
2: Mother, today I will avenge your death. Emperor, an impassable storm has descended. The shield wall has been penetrated by atomics.
3: Release the Sardaukar, Baron, give this little abomination to the storm. Wait for my brother Baron
0: Hello Hey. Perry. Hello, how are you? Hi, how are you doing? Fine. Uh, hello and welcome to I bring you... he- welcome <laughs> Hello and welcome to our show. Thank you. How would you compare and contrast your creative directions dramatically and musically? You know, your two passions are acting and music, and how would you compare and contrast them for you creatively?
4: Oh, you know, there is such a personal connection to this music because, of course, as a singer-songwriter, I am recording, producing, you know, coming up with the songs. whether it's... A solo write or writes with others, but every song that I've recorded that's an original so far has had its root in something deeply personal. Whether it's a different person's experience, it's still my my view of it and my uh, my perception of it. So when somebody shares with me that a song I've written and performed has a deep personal meaning to them as well. It just feels like I'm able to connect with them on a much deeper level. Whereas when I play a character, if I'm doing my job right, you should forget that's even me that you're watching. And especially if I'm playing somebody who's the polar opposite of me, like a stone-cold killer, then when someone tells me they loved that performance and they really believed me, they're they're telling me I've done a great job as a as an artist, as a craft person, you know. Mm. So it's that's a great compliment, but it's not as personal, not nearly as personal. And plus most of the time I didn't write those scripts and those aren't characters I came up with. So you're really complimenting everybody involved hmm. there. Um, music is super collaborative too, obviously, the artists who perform on my music and produce with me. and But it's just very different.
0: It's, yeah,
4: I love connecting to people through music. That's why I started doing it in the first place.
0: What can you say about your latest album, Witness? What led you to create these songs and their inspiration?
4: The six songs that make up this E P witness are all they all have something to do with either being a witness to events that have happened to me or happened to others or the experience of others being my witness. And in the case of the title track, it is both. It it tells the story of getting through a very tough time mm. with those who are closest to you as your witness and giving you the opportunity to draw closer to them in that process Mm -hmm. and be there for them in ways you couldn't otherwise. Mm -hmm. Um, Four of the songs on this EP were written within a couple of weeks of recording them. Mm -hmm. I got back into Nashville from working on The Masked Singer and and I wanted to jump into the studio and record something just as quickly as I could so that there would be new music out by the time these episodes aired. So uh, it's a thrill to have them out in the world so soon after their inception.
0: Mm. Any thoughts to share professionally and personally about the current actor strike?
4: It is so crucially important so needed I you know when I came through a rough time a few years ago I it was essential to me to work during that time I would have preferred obviously to to not work but I'm just grateful I was able to work you know I, I, I'm so incredibly blessed to be a working actor and to be somebody that um, that has the opportunities that I do, and it is so not right that an actor who is living paycheck to paycheck, working so hard to get enough employment to be able to pay their bills take care of their families and all of that. If they find themselves on a hit show, you know, film the whole thing, maybe work a day rate because they don't have name recognition. So they get, they're grateful to have the work. But then if that show ends up becoming a huge hit on a streaming network, those same actors basically don't make any more money even though the streamer is now raking in hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, that's the crux of what we're fighting for.
3: Yeah.
4: And those residuals need to need to add up to a meaningful amount like they used to when the networks were our primary source of residuals um, because – it's not fair that some of the people that you're now enjoying and their work for decades to come are struggling to make ends meet um, when the networks or streamers are are far from struggling, mm-hmm. and we're only asking for a tiny percentage to be divvied, like two percent, mm-hmm. to be divvied among all of the creatives who made these made these. Shows and movies possible for us to enjoy.
0: And when Alicia Witt looks in the mirror, what does she see?
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, I just turned and looked in the mirror to to find out. Um, I I see someone who's. Um, I I really like who I see in the mirror. Yeah. I, I I dare say I like her. I like her more every day. <laughs> I, I really enjoy it, this this identity I come in this time and I'm just trying to um (laughs) trying to live a good life every single day and hopefully hopefully keep um maybe I'll like the person in the mirror a little more tomorrow than I do today
0: (laughs) (laughs) okay well thank you so much Alicia Witt for calling to our show thank you Prairie okay bye bye and now on Arts Express in the writer's corner miguel gardel reads his short story the blues in america
3: my baby don't stand no cheating my baby oh yeah she don't stand no cheating my baby Oh yeah, she don't stand no cheatin' She don't stand none of that midnight creepin' My babe,
5: too little baby, my babe This is the Blues in America. When I lived in Queens, my friend Lenny, always wanting to prove that he was hip and worthy, he borrowed a record player from his music class. He was in the school orchestra and he let me have a player in exchange for an old gathering moss album i had we traded albums all the time lenny owned a violin he played turkey in the straw when we smoked weed in his house we laughed heartily all the time in his room loud with gusto and we arrogantly made fun of hillbillies. We bought the weed from his girlfriend who lived on the fourth floor. Lenny lived on the seventh and we looked down at the basketball court. We never played any sports because sports was not hit. We looked down on it. One day when I was nine or 10 and living up in Manhattan, I looked out the window and out there in the courtyard, they were having a picnic. It was the Super and the Super's family. They had come to New York from the south. A dark skinny man was sitting on a chair. He was holding an electric guitar. He was singing. The music was loud, reverberating against the brick walls. He was playing the blues, but I didn't know it. I looked at my mother. She said they're playing their music, and it was magical and magically above anything I had ever heard, and I thought that in the South, everyone played and sang the strange and beautiful music. I also thought that there was no reason why this overpowering sound shouldn't be ours, too. But it was mysterious and abstract to us. My mother thought it was a religion and told me to never join it. She didn't want me to be different. We are Catholics, she said. As a teenager, it was the white musician from England on the recordings who turned me on and I read about their inspirations, and then it all came together. I went back to the original and I couldn't get enough. I listened to Buku Blues all day. When I didn't, I'd read comfortably in my room, and sometimes I'd come to passages where I didn't know what the writer had meant about something and it made me feel inferior and even angry with myself for not knowing deep, philosophical, penetrating stuff. Man, I got suicidal and really wanted to kill myself. I had to listen to some blues to get rid of that terrible, crushing feeling. I picked up an old Spanish guitar one day and I got a guitar chord manual and nothing happened. I tried to get friends to teach me. Nothing. I got desperate at 16, bought a used electric one at a pawn shop, and decided to teach myself seriously this time. Nothing. One day, out of frustration, I went completely berserk in my room. I had never been so desperate in my life. Totally psyched out. I plugged that guitar as if I wanted the world to explode, but what exploded was the amp. Smoke started to come out of it, and then it died. The guitar was still okay, though. I met a crazy guy in Lefrak City who was willing to trade his old beat-up drum kit for my electric and I started a band with my friend Lenny on violin and my old friend Chili Mickey from Manhattan on guitar. They said I had rhythm, but I couldn't play, and I lacked patience, but I refused to give it up. I practiced in Lenny's apartment. His mother called the police. She told him I had been corrupting her son for a while now and wanted me and Chili thrown out of her apartment. I put all my stuff in the elevator, and the cops made me dump the kid in the dumpster. Chili Mickey took the subway back to Manhattan with his expensive Fender guitar. I still had my sticks, and I shoved them in my back pocket and walked back to Corona where I was living. I got home, and my frustration was high, and the depression came next. But I had a bunch of old authentic blues albums. Man, those blues songs really cooled me down. I went to school the next day. My babe, I know she love me, my babe.
3: Oh yes, I know she. But kiss and hug me, my babe True little baby, my babe Stand no cheating, my baby. Oh no, she don't stand no cheating, my baby. Oh no, she don't stand no cheating. Everything she do, she do so pleasing, my baby. True little baby, my baby. My baby, don't stand no fooling, my baby. She not stand no fooling, my baby Oh, yeah she don't stand no fooling. When she's hot, there ain't no cooling, my,
0: my baby 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 Your Impossible Voice, Star 82 Review, Brick Rhetoric, Bilingual Review, and other publications. And the music you've been listening to is late blues legend Little Walter, whose revolutionary harmonica has drawn comparisons to Charlie Parker and Jimi Hendrix.
6: This is Comrade Karl Marx. And when I'm visiting the 21st century, I listen to Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. You have nothing to lose but your chains. You have a world to win. Listeners of the world, unite.
7: That's Arts Express with host Prairie Miller, where art meets politics. And if you're down with the status quo, take the
0: local. And we'll go out now on Arts Express with the final double deep dive episodes of Nine Minute Nietzsche as Peter Wise and Keegan Jelson continue their exploration into the life and philosophical mysteries of Nietzsche and what all of this may have to do with Machiavelli, Plato, the Pope as Mafia Don, brothels, pianos, paganism, and madness.
2: my principal article of faith is that one can only flourish among people who share the identical ideas and the identical will I have no one that is my sickness if adopting a popular manner I recommend Schopenhauer or Wagner to the Germans or conjure up Zarathustras these are my remedies above all else they are hiding places where I can lose myself for a time.
6: Were Marx and Nietzsche separated at birth? I mean, Nietzsche has this disdain for the masses while Karl professes a, a love for the, the masses, but they're both solidly materialist sort of uh, believers, right? How do you imagine that happen? How could two people with a similar genius uh, go on two different uh, ways in respect to who's important in humanity and who isn't do you have any
7: idea i would say hmm, on some level i mean the, the easy answer to that question as to how they could be so different might just be psychology and differences in, in their life circumstances and you know marx saw the onset of industrial capitalism in the ruhr valley and um you know, he had a very particular set of circumstances. Nietzsche is this guy. He's a classicist, right? He studies ancient Greece, and he, his primary concern is very individualistic, right? It's His ba- his lifelong story is his battle with his illness. Right, he but he's this-
6: not aristocrat. He wasn't born into an aristocratic life, and yet he, he, he chooses the aristocrats of Greece as being the arbiters of uh, a, good, uh, a good life, a, a way to live, and how the world should be, correct? So how did he get from that? From his, I wouldn't say he's got um, uh, bourgeois um, beginnings, he's more religious beginnings, correct? So, how, why yeah. does he have this? He actually
7: makes fun of the, the bourgeois class as well, quite a bit. Marx and Nietzsche yeah. actually do converge uh, a bit during Nietzsche's middle period, where they, um, Nietzsche writes uh, quite a bit in Human to Human and a little bit in The Gay Science. Um, uh, Criticisms of capitalism mm-hmm. and uh, the cultural effect that it has, and the fact that he doesn't think a system of merit based on the free market is preferable to the old aristocracies, right? Which that's not a view that many of us would share, but it's not. Uh, I, I I pointed out just simply because he was not. Um, you know, Nietzsche is sometimes grouped together with Ayn Rand, uh, <laughs> but he actually lambasts he he lambasts many of the type of figures that Rand thought were were admirable. Nietzsche didn't think the businessman was a good model for the, um, you know, he, he basically thought the kind of people you elevate to the top of society. For one, he thinks this is an inevitability, right? Mm-hmm. So, we could say a lot of things about that. I think answer your question Mm -hmm. Nietzsche believes I think he saw something in the Greek worldview that we he felt that Christianity had excised from the European mind insofar as there was a sort of noble morality that was very much embodied like the Greek aristocrats they're proud of the human body and Mm. human beauty and uh, human like excellence and quality and they think life is a good thing. There's mm-hmm. that famous line in, in the Iliad where they meet Achilles in the underworld. And he, he says, I would rather be a, a peasant farmer than a, a brave hero here in the, in the world of the dead. Mm-hmm. Right? That it, even to be somebody of no repute, it's better to be alive and breathe the air and feel the, the warmth of the sun. That they think life is good fundamentally. Right? And Christianity and he snatched that. all that from them. And, and the important part of that critique is that Nietzsche sees that Christianity coming out of people who have come to see the world as bad mm-hmm. because of their position in the power structure. That they've been compelled to create this narrative in which the meek shall inherit the earth, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than to thread a camel through the eye of the needle. Mm-hmm. He sees these messages in Christianity as basically coming out of people who learned to hate life because life did not turn out well for them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so, I think in many ways, you could ask yourself the question about Nietzsche's politics and whether he has a good or relevant politics himself, but what I get out of Nietzsche and what I think is very useful is to consider how he was trying to just bring in this voice of Mm -hmm. the Greek antiquity Mm -hmm. that had been silenced. And it wasn't I, I think that if he had mitigated what he said or tried to qualify what he said, right, then we, we wouldn't have him as this archetypal voice for the Greek morality of antiquity. He mm-hmm. kind of stands for that, bringing not to just a, ret- a vulgar return to that, but rediscovering that and, and rediscovering that we actually all have a tinge of that within ourselves, mm-hmm. right? We, we And that there is an element of modernity now that Christianity... Uh, does seem to be in decline in accord with what Nietzsche said, where we might actually have the opportunity to begin celebrating things like sexuality and the beauty of the physical body in a way that you actually couldn't in, you know, say the 1400s. But how... Like this, the saints are all these sickly people in their portrait. They're like... Skin and bones, and they have these wide, bulging, <laughs> crazy eyes and unkempt beards. Like they, they beat themselves, and they hate the physical body. Right? This there actually right. was a time when we couldn't celebrate these things that I think are part of humanity. And I think that aristocracy preference on be, on behalf of Nietzsche is trying to bring in like this is an element of nature that we've ignored. Mm. And just like Marx, I think if you, I think everyone should read both of them. Sure. Because they both stand for this unequivocal voice, right, uh, in the 19th century, concerned about the direction of the future of humanity. Marx through economics and Nietzsche through culture. Oh,
6: well, I think that's a very good point you're making there. they are experts in their fields and, uh, you know, they do converge at times, but uh, they are two separate entities. Uh, And I'd add Freud,
7: too. During the time of, say, Machiavelli and uh, Cesare Borgia, Mm -hmm. the Catholic bishops and the Pope were like mafiadons. Mm-hmm. Nietzsche says, I believe, in in it's in the Antichrist, he says, life sat on the throne of the Vatican. These were people who, you know, the Pope made his illegitimate son, Cesare Borgia, like a bishop and gave him an army to go wage war on people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the, Nietzsche repeatedly says, in the Mediterranean, the more Catholic countries in Europe, they have an attitude towards faith that is more... He calls it the sacrifice of the intellect, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he says it in Italian. I, I'm not going to risk trying to pronounce that in Italian. <laughs> I'm not going to risk but... listening to it either. <laughs> <laughs> but he basically that they, um, they're willing to just submit to the authority figure, mm-hmm. right? That's the infallible representative of God on earth. And mm-hmm. even if he, you know, has... The mistresses and kids, while well, he's supposed to be a celibate priest, <laughs> yeah. and is you know making all this money for himself and raising armies and making war for political gain, that's still the holy man on earth. And Nietzsche mm. thinks, basically, what had happened is that those old pagan values that they did preserve through Aristotle and Plato and others, mm-hmm. were had sort of crept back into uh, into power during the time of the renaissance well, and some yeah, of sure. his heroes are like cesare borgia and then you have this german uh figure in luther this systematizer this cold right. uh, sort of this man wants to take the faith and make it coherent and <laughs> forget about make it, <laughs> it uh, available to all people and make it pure right the germans right. purify their beer and they purify the faith and they they're People like Luther. I mean, they're against the selling of indulgences, against life sitting on the throne. They're against the popes and all their immoralities. Um, and so, Nietzsche actually had great admiration for the Catholic Church and thought the Germans kind of ruined that for everyone.
6: Right. Uh, that
7: we, we might Europe might have been at the cusp of rediscovering pagan values, and Luther messed it all up. Right,
6: uh, and so you could call him an iconoclast, right? Uh, in, in in many ways. I was going to ask you. Um, along with all the materialist stuff, and you sort of obliquely mentioned his health, his health was terrible. And did this really define his... He claims that it improved his life, his mental life and his creativity, because he, you know, the old things, the things that don't kill you, you know, that old um, routine. Um, But as a personal opinion, um, how much did sickness... Uh, and and it appears uh hereditary sickness from both sides of his family how
7: how much did that shape his belief would you say his sickness um yeah so his father Nietzsche's father died when he was I think five years old and then a year later his little brother died Mm -hmm. I think at two years old Mm -hmm. um it's, it's not known if this is a congenital defect, but Nietzsche started having migraines when he was, I believe, 12. Mm-hmm. And then things only got worse from there. He had stomach problems, uh, eye problems. He was, he reports that he's three quarters blind by the time he's at right. the end of his life. And then, of course, the, the mental breakdown where he collapsed in the square in Turin. Uh, as to how this informed his life, I mean, for me, I think that. I mean, it actually ties into the eternal recurrence because if you want a convincing example case for a life, the the, the idea that life is suffering, right, that if you wanted a life that was exemplary in terms of the Schopenhauerian view that life is suffering, mm-hmm. Nietzsche's life is certainly that because of his condition that his father may have died of, his little brother may have died of, and just got worse throughout his life and probably resulted in his uh, eventual insanity. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that Nietzsche seeks to um, basically eternalize that life, this life that was very painful and that he ended in madness, right, and as an invalid, and that he sort of knew that was going to happen to him, he he reports these suspicions to his friends, like, I think this is a sign, he, he told his friend... Uh, Reza Schoenhofer, that when I close my eyes, I see a profusion of fantastic flowers, you know, twirling in all directions. Is mm-hmm. this not a sign of incipient madness? He kind of knew that where this ends is your brain, you know, that the doctor said his father died of liquefaction of the brain. Well,
6: yeah, and that's what's so interesting <laughs> is, you know, this amor Fatih of his, uh, no uh, you know, since... He probably intuited it was congenital or, or uh, you know, uh, by heredity. And he was frequently called syphilitic because of this, right? I mean, people at that time said, well, they didn't have an explanation, so he must have gotten some kind of venereal an disease and his brain deteriorated. And there was no cure for syphilis yeah. at that time, right? But that's that's a bad thing. But lately... Uh, somebody definitively said yes. He did have a specific uh, syndrome, and it is is the brain wasting disease, which uh, the strokes were symptomatic of, but weren't. They weren't the cause of. I mean, obviously he had the genetic makeup that that led to that, and uh, it, it's. How uh, how do you explain his enormity of creation and writing? Is is he, is he trying to race against death because he's pretty certain that it, uh, it's going to be uh, uh, before his time? Wouldn't you say?
7: Yeah, I always think of a letter where he uh, he told a friend uh, he described his time at I believe the University of Leipzig as a as a wasted year, hmm. um, and I don't remember exactly why, but it. it the idea of a wasted year, right? He, he felt his time on earth to be imminently valuable and knew that he, he, he just never knew when it was going to be his last year on earth. Mm-hmm. And I think this accounts for the fact that he wrote so prolifically, especially mm-hmm. compared to other philosophers. I mean, we have some philosophers that are a man of one book. Yeah. Nietzsche has like a dozen titles to his name and they're almost all good, mm-hmm. which is kind of remarkable, right? Um, even the stuff toward the end of his life, uh, it may be a little bit more grandiose, but it's not. Uh, you know, it's not like he's gone off his rocker like some of Kant's later writings uh, are a bit are a bit wacky. Who might say he started
6: out off his rocker? Uh, but uh, <laughs> right, yeah, some would. Yeah, he's walking around. Where was he? Where did he live? Leipzig, talking to himself for an eternity. Uh, Kant's lived in. Uh, Konigsberg, which is my Mont- oh, right, and Hullinan- right. Yeah, I have a friend who's actually a teacher there. <laughs> I hope he doesn't end up like that. Uh, but it's
7: a beautiful city. I've never been, but it looks quite gorgeous.
6: Yeah, well, that's great. Have you been? You must have been to Europe. Yes, I think you said you've been to Europe. Yeah,
7: yeah. So, have you yeah, looked in uh, things.
6: Nietzsche's letters? Have you traveled to uh, his home? Have you made a, a, a
7: sort of a pilgrimage there or uh, done research there? I've been to. Nietzsche's uh, room at the college at Basel and I've been to his
6: apartment in Turin. And did you get some sensation there that was different from any other
7: place you'd ever been? Not really. We just kind of took pictures. and got a postcard. Yeah. I mean, it was it was actually quite nice that it's on the side of the building uh, right where Nietzsche lived. It's right next mm-hmm. to this beautiful square in uh, downtown Tur- Turin. hmm and there is a uh, sort of, a, I guess, a I don't know what you would call it, an, an etching of Nietzsche's face mm-hmm. in the set into the side of the building and then a uh-huh. memorial where it describes that he wrote Ike Homo* when he lived here. And um, it, it's nice to see, you know, a, a monument to Nietzsche.
6: Yeah, um, absolutely.
7: Other than his own... In, in, in Bo- right. And in Basel, it's just a little placard that says this was his room. Well, the Swiss but it's worth visiting Basel. Yeah. Yeah, I I would, uh, if anyone ever listening is visiting Switzerland, Basel is certainly the the, the city to check out there, I would say. Yeah, Um, for their artwork. Swimming in the Rhine. For one thing, yeah. Yeah, the artwork. The art shows
6: and all that kind of stuff. Um, So as far as you know, you don't know much about his private life. Um, He certainly did extol sexuality, but did he practice it a lot, or was he
7: sort of in the sidelines? Um, in terms of, wait, you said he extols it? As in, like, I, I mean. Well, yeah, I mean, he, he
6: argues for sensuality because of Dionysus, right? I mean, he praises it. With, okay, yeah. Yeah. Yes,
7: yeah. yeah, sensuality, right? Okay. Um, no, he, he was not, uh, from everything we know, Nietzsche was not a ladies' man. Mm-hmm. And it's not entirely clear to me whether he was uh, even I mean it's possible he died a virgin we don't really know Mm -hmm. now I think I think that's unlikely Um, there are stories about him going to brothels but there was also a story from his friend Paul Dusan that when Nietzsche was accidentally dropped off at a brothel by a carriage driver he was so he like went white in the face and was so nervous that all he could think to do was go over and play their piano (laughs) and then got up and left (laughs) <laughs> um, and so I don't know. From that story, it makes me kind of question the stories that were probably just based on the fact that people incorrectly thought he had syphilis, yeah, when yeah. in fact it was some sort of congenital disease. Uh, he did have close relationships with women, though, and, and people often only bring up Lou Salome, mm-hmm. which is actually sort of a dubious case. Um, there are actually... there are There's evidence of concrete uh, examples. There's letters where he talks about proposing to women he had just met two days before ah, he and saying, you're wonderful run away with me and he always got rejected but we always hear this story about uh, this woman Lou Salome I, I think because it's been kind of spun into this love triangle between her and Nietzsche and this other uh, philosopher psychologist Paul Ray and it makes for a really good story sure but-, but when you actually look into it we don't actually have good evidence that he did propose to her That was something she said in, like, 1920, long after Nietzsche had died, and and, and it wasn't really mentioned at the time. Mm -hmm. But there are a couple of acquaintances of Nietzsche's that it's possible he might have had some relationship with, if you're willing to speculate a little bit. Well, she... Um, Like, met a... Meadow Van Salis, I would say, is the best candidate, that perhaps they had some sort of intimate relationship. Okay. But it's unclear.
6: Would he be, uh, in your opinion, would he be looking for sex just to vindicate his ideas about Dionysus, to, to give him some street cred, so to, so to speak? You know, that, yes, I know what I'm talking about because I've had the, the experience, uh, rather than just... Um, mining Dionysus for these abstract theories of sexuality and and freedom and all that kind of stuff. Or is that that's kind of a hard question, isn't it? I mean, well,
7: yeah, I, I can't get into his head, but I would just say I actually don't get that impression. The impression I get from from the existing accounts that I've read, some of which are, do not come from Nietzsche, but from, in fact, the woman he proposed to, mm-hmm. and uh, I believe her name is Maria Baumgartner is the woman I'm thinking of here. Mm-hmm. Um, that it, she, she was introduced at Nietzsche was introduced to, if not members of high society, like, as you say, he wasn't an aristocrat, but he wasn't among circles of working people either. He's in these circles of academics and sort of prominent writers. He's in the artistic sort of community, we Mm -hmm. might say. And he gets introduced oftentimes to, hello, I'm so-and-so, this is my daughter or my sister or so and so in these high, not if not high society definitely more you know at, at the at a nicer you know um, right we have to say bourgeois here I, it, we gotta say bourgeois. it is bourgeois yeah, yeah. that's that that's that is the word I'm looking for at sort of the bourgeois level right and but occasionally it's whenever he meets a woman who then expresses some sort of intellectual or philosophical depth. He's like unable to resist, and huh. he immediately says we should get married. And they almost <laughs> always say, "Whoa, I just met you," and uh, uh, you know that. And it doesn't work out. And so it—it uh, yeah. it seems to me that he actually wanted a uh, an intellectual uh, woman to be his partner, That's sort of what he was dreaming of.
2: I know my fate. One day, my name will be associated with a memory of something tremendous. A crisis without equal on Earth. The most profound collision of conscience conjured up against everything that had been believed, demanded, hallowed so far. Where you see ideals, I see what is human. Alas, all too human.
0: That's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at the Goddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station. <music>